again, as always, and I don't do this as a matter of rote. I do it because I, this, is, this is the truth. <clears throat> it is exciting to see you here on Sunday morning for the study of the Word. This is exciting. Thank you so much for honoring God because what we do when we gather for the study of the Word, whether we're doing it on a personal basis, uh, with a friend, in a covenant group, uh, in a corporate setting such as this, Sunday morning worship, all of these are extremely significant times. What we're doing essentially and mostly is honoring God. And so my prayer is that as we do this and as you attend, not only are we learning together, not only are we being ministered to by the Holy Spirit through the Word, but that God's favor will be more pronounced and experienced by you than had you not been here. And you say, oh, wow, why would you pray that? Because as we open our hearts to the Lord to receive, we pray that that receiving will redound to a greater blessing than when we don't. So again, thank you for being here. We're in, for those of you who might be new, there's several of you in here this morning that haven't been here for the last several Sundays, or maybe as we've been studying Colossians. And so this morning we're continuing Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 10. Remember last lesson, we saw that Paul prayed for the church. And to remember, in Colossians, Paul is writing to a church that he has not founded, was probably founded by the fellow named Epaphras. Paul's not visited the church. Paul's in Roman custody. So this is called one of the prison epistles, which means that one of the letters that Paul wrote from Rome while under prison, uh, while under custody, he wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four epistles have go out together as a group of letters, and so those are called the prison epistles. And so he's writing to a church that, again, he hasn't found it, but he has heard a lot about. And he's not only excited about what God is doing in this particular church, but he's also concerned. And his concern is a concern that all of us continually need to have, not only about our personal walk with the Lord, but about the walk of our friends and our relatives and the church and others that we know in Christ. And that is this, that as we walk with Christ, we will continually and even increasingly experience opposition, opposition from the enemy who is the source, but through various avenues. And so however the opposition, opposition comes, it's not as significant to know that the opposition is from the opposer of the brethren. And you remember, the word adversary in Hebrew is the word satan, S-A-T-A-N. That's the word adversary in the Hebrew, satan. And this becomes personalized only in a couple of places in um, um, uh, the Old Testament, such as Job in chapter 1, you remember in chapter 2. But of course, in uh, the New Testament, all of a sudden, we're dealing with a being who is the adversary of God, therefore the ad adversary of God's people. And so Paul hears about the opposition. He's not surprised. He's not saying, oh, you know, what have I taught? It's not working. Things are falling apart. The man knows that as the gospel moves forward, there will be continual 
pushback against the gospel by the enemy. So don't be surprised about that in your own life. Don't be surprised about it in the lives of those others whom you know or even in the church. Let's be realistic. So what does Paul do? He prays for the church. And this prayer, as we said, he could have prayed. How many things could the apostle have prayed for this church? I mean, how much could he have prayed for? You imagine, I'm going to be writing the church, and I want to gather into this prayer all that I can say concerning their need and the ministry and the effect and the power and the revelation of God. I want to gather up. Can you imagine how much Paul had to gather up, what this man knew, what he had experienced, what he had seen in paradise, remember, in the third heaven as he was given revelation. So what does he say in chapter 1, verse 9? He says, this is what I pray. I pray this, that you be filled, 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 coming under the control of, totally consumed with the knowledge of God's will. But he doesn't stop there. Then the next phrase is an adjectival phrase going back and describing what does that mean. In all spiritual of the spirit, wisdom and understanding. This is what I pray for you. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, and I'm kind of starting off slowly this morning, I know that. We said a couple of weeks ago, this is a fundamental prayer that we should regularly be praying for ourselves and others in Christ. If you're looking for a prayer that kind of sums up what we need as believers, well, we need help, we need finances, we need direction of the Holy Spirit, we need strength. We need, yes, we know all that, but put it all together, and I believe that in this prayer, Paul gathers up all of our needs and says this, I, be, I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So let's make verse 9 of chapter 1 of Colossians one of our primary prayers for ourselves, for others in Christ, for the church, for the leadership, for all of God's people. So you remember last week, we, we talked on the last several Sundays, we've talked about that. And that prayer has a purpose. It is a prayer that is given not just be generically spiritually well off and know a lot of things and just get God's blessings, but there is a particular purpose that God has in mind. God has done this. God desires to be filling us with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding for a very specific purpose. And that purpose, remember, we looked in the Old Testament in chapter 31 of Exodus in verses 1 through 4. And Moses has been given the uh, revelation of the tabernacle, how to build this. Remember, 40 days and 40 nights in Mount Horeb. And it comes back down. And the Lord says, build this tabernacle according to the pattern that I've shown you in the heavens. So that on the earth, heaven may be represented and lived out. And so Moses by the Spirit's leadership is gathering people together. And Bezalel, one of these fellows, the word says, is given this same kind of wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding from the Spirit in order to have the ability, the revelation, the workmanship, etc., to construct the, t the tabernacle of God. So the prayer has a purpose. 
And so last week, this morning, we begin to talk about what is the purpose? What is the target of this prayer? Every one of our prayers should have a target. Our prayers should always have a target. We should never pray without a target, a goal in mind. Now, ultimately, obviously, the goal in mind is the glory of God. But then there are going to be specific targets at which we aim our prayer arrows, if you would, in order for the glory of God to be administered by God's Spirit. So what is the purpose of this prayer? Why pray this? So let's begin to look at verse 10. And we're going to take verse 10, as we've been taking the other verses, a little slowly. So what do we see in verse 10? So as to walk worthy of the Lord. Do you see where I am? Why is Paul giving them this prayer? What is the purpose of this prayer? What should be the purpose of all of our praying? So as to walk worthy of the Lord. And I want this morning to talk about the issue and the activity of the word walk. And I may talk about a few things. I think, first of all, we're going to say nothing this morning that's going to be revolutionary and uh, revelatory. I think everything we will say, you've heard many times before. But I want to make sure we gather it up and put it together and so that we listen very carefully. So I probably and hopefully will say close to my notes this morning. And, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit will minister to us some truth. Father, thank you so much. Father, thank you so much. that you have done a work in us so that we could walk with you. Father, the picture comes to my mind when I used to walk down the street with one of my grandchildren, a little child holding on to my hand. Relationship, connection, love, protection, provision. Father, this is what you want from us. Father, you have joined us to yourself through Christ. And now in this world, and of course in the world to come, we are those who are walking down the streets of life holding your hand, walking together. Father, this is a delight for us, but it doesn't begin to touch the delight and the pleasure that you have. Father, we pray that as we continue through Colossians, this revelation, this understanding, this practice of our walk will grow and grow. And as our walk grows, we know that your pleasure in our walk will also grow. Father, thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does the church need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual wisdom and understanding? Why? Why? So that we will walk worthy of the Lord. That's the reason. So as to walk worthy of the Lord, that phrase, so as to walk worthy of the Lord, tells us that God's purpose is filled specifically through the way we walk. <clears throat> it is the Greek word parapeteo, and it means to, uh, it, it has reference to our daily living, 
the way we live our lives, our daily behavior. <clears throat> it obviously doesn't have anything necessarily to do with our physical stride. It has everything to do with how are we living on a daily basis. That living has to do with my personal living when I'm by myself, my thoughts, my attitudes, my desires. It has everything to do with the way I'm living as a husband, as a dad, as a grandfather. It has everything to do with my living as I'm out in the world relating to other people. I'm driving. I don't know if driving should be considered part of this. Uh, uh, you know, I think maybe that's excluded the way we drive. And it's who we are as people. Our walk is who we are as people, what we do. Only people who are not alive don't do anything. All alive people do something. And so this is our walk. You see, for Paul, the walk of the believer is of central significance. I think we listed in your, um, your outline there, Paul references the word walk, other than in Colossians, 24 times in these epistles. I, I think, did we give you those references? 24 times this walk that walk the other walk walking together i didn't even talk about how much jesus references our walk and the other apostles reference our walk walk is a central significance it is the fruit of our salvation so paul describes the effect of their worthy walk what is this worthy walk to look like what does it look like it's going to have three things at least is going to be fully pleasing to God, which we'll get into either next week or the next week. It is to be fully pleasing to God. It is to be a walk that bears fruit. And it is to be a walk that produces an increased knowledge of God. And so, how can we be fully pleasing to God? How can we be bearing the fruit of righteousness? How can we be increasing in the knowledge of God? in our walk that is worthy of the Lord. Not just any walk, but a walk that is worthy of the Lord. And again, we'll discuss what worthy of the Lord has to do probably next week. Now, before we examine the effect of our walk, these three issues, these three effects, of course, we could put worthy as an effect too, but I just felt to join those together. So, if you feel differently, there could be four, that's fine, obviously. But before we examine the effect of our walk, it is important that we notice that Paul connects. Now look at verse 10. Paul connects our walk with a word and an activity that so often we as believers shy away from because I think we have misinterpreted and misused it, or at least enough has been misinterpreted and misused that we kind of stay, stay away from. So what does he call our wor worthy walk? Bearing fruit what else? Oh, you look in verse 10. Bearing fruit, you see toward the end of verse 10, and what else? And good something. Works. Good works. So what does Paul do? You see, this apostle is not afraid of saying that our walk is our work. It is a good work. Walk, work, or synonymous terms. In Paul's mind, in this verse, walk and work are synonymous terms in Paul's mind in this verse. If a walk is worthy of the Lord, it will be a walk that produces and is exemplified in good works. Do we see that? And we don't want to shy away from what the Bible joins together, no matter how badly people may 
preach this or teach this or even how badly we may understand it. We want to bring together what God brings together in his word. So he says this, so as to walk dot, dot, dot in every good work. Obviously, you know, dot, dot, dot means we've left out part of the sentence. I hopefully, hopefully you remember your English grammar that well. Yeah, what's wrong with his finger? Dot, dot, dot. It got, you know, a little nervous there. So before we examine the effect of their walk, let's make sure that we see that their walk is connected with their work. So it, this raises a few questions. Work, good works. What is a place of work in our salvation? Or is there any place of good works in our salvation? Do we have to do good work to be saved? Do we have to be doing good works to be kept saved? Now be careful before you start shaking your heads, honey childs. Don't shake your heads too fast. If so, what kind of work is necessary? If we have to do good work to be saved and good work to be kept saved, what kinds of works are necessary? Do we begin to get your attention this morning? And I'm hoping we can finish this class before 4.30 this afternoon. I, I, wait, wait, wait. I, I thought that grace relieved us of having to do any good works. Isn't grace opposed to good works? Aren't these two antithetical in opposition? Now you see, think about it. All of a sudden, you, I'm not going to say me because, you know, I've wrestled with this. So I'm past where you are. So if you, forgive me for not being with you on this one. All of a sudden, many of you are, uh, uh, all of a sudden something, wait a minute, what, what are we doing here? Is he undoing what we believe the gospel to preach. Now, if I am, Evan May has approved this theologically, so it's all his fault. <laughs> Are we undoing what the gospel of grace preaches? In order to answer these questions, <clears throat> we must first examine what does the Bible say about the works of a believer. You see, you and I cannot begin to have a conversation or an understanding of communication if we're not defining our terminology. I was in a meeting just the other day. And there was a dispute between a believer in this church and some believers from another church. And we were having a meeting about this. And some kind of way I didn't get the why it came up or how it came up that was not germane to me. But apparently these believers were saying, we believe you can lose your salvation. And this believer from our church said, you cannot lose your salvation. <clears throat> and of course, they got in some kind of a conversation. Now, would to God that they would get into an animated conversation of the glory and the riches of Jesus Christ rather than these other things. And so they all looked at me. And I said, here's your problem. There is no such terminology in the Bible as lose your salvation. Am I right, Bill? Is it in the Bible, brother? You know the Bible better than any of us. It's not there. Is there any place in the Bible, Bill, that says once saved, always saved? Is there anything in the Bible that says that kind of terminology? It's not there, is it? So we, could we begin to immediately disabuse ourselves of these unbiblical terminologies as we discuss the content of the Word of God and as we discuss the content and the meaning of the Word of God? Let's put our 
conversation on the basis of the Bible's conversation, and then we can begin to talk about what God says from the perspective of God using God's words and getting God's meaning and coming to a real God-answered revelation. Amen? So don't go anymore about, I believe you can do it. I don't. Stop it. And first say, less defined terms. You believe you can lose your salvation, pal? Okay, first, show me in the Bible where it said, you know, someone said to me the other day, free will. Free will's in the Bible. I said, great, great. I didn't say it wasn't. I said, great. Frank, I said, great. Then what was my next comment? Show me where. And they got their concordance out, and they whipped that thing out, Joe, faster than lightning could strike. And they found free will all over the Old Testament. And every time free will was mentioned in the Old Testament, it was mentioned in relation to what? Money. Free will offerings. Uh, okay, then. It isn't there. So don't involve yourself with conversations that use terminologies and philosophies and presuppositions that are not Bible-related and Bible-produced. Amen? Can we be believers who are biblically informed and biblically communicate in order to get the Bible's content? Can we do that? So let's put aside unbiblical terminology, man's presuppositions, and let's look at the Word of God. So first of all, what does the Bible say about the work of a believer? Now look, we're not going to cover everything today, so we're going to go through this very quickly. All I'm hoping today is that the Holy Spirit will whet your appetite churn you up if you need to be churned up and you get into your Bible and you make a study as we see who does that and they were more noble than the rest Bereans where is that what book Acts chapter 17 okay thank you I knew you knew it because we've already preached on that first of all who is the authority of what should be said in the Bible Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 6, verse 28. Or you may have it in your notes. I, I don't remember what's quoted in your notes or not. John chapter 20, uh, cha John, what, what did I say? Where is it? John chapter 6, 28. I think that's what I said. Gene said, I'm getting confused about things. You're right. But I don't want to be confused about the Word of God. John chapter 6, 28. And then they said to him, you see, people were coming to Jesus asking, you know, particular questions. So they, this is a group of folks who've come to Jesus. We don't have to go into details of who they are and why they were there. They were just people asking him something. And they said to Jesus, what must we do? What must what? We do. To be doing the works of God. See, they knew the works of God were important. So Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. You see, the crowd was asking what we usually get asked. What do we have to do to be saved? What do we have to do to be accepted by God? What do we have to do to get to heaven? How many times have anybody, has anybody ever asked you that in any kind of a form? It's asked regularly. What do we have to do? You remember that great sermon that somebody preached on a particular day and everybody in the crowd in chapter 2, verse 37 to 8. What must we do to what? 
be saved. The Holy Spirit pierced the hearts of those who heard that sermon by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. What do we have to do? What is our response? You know, now notice this. Notice what Jesus did not say. Max, what did he not say? He didn't say, you don't have to do anything, brother. You don't have to do anything. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. You see, Karen, if absolutely good works is absolutely not a part of anything of us, then Jesus would have said, you got it wrong. We don't have to do any good works. He didn't say that. He took the word work, took what they meant of it, and put it in the context of what God means and desires and even requires of it. But do you notice he didn't say, no works, no works, no works, all of grace, no works. He doesn't say that. He says this, you need to do something. You need to do a good work. Well, what is that good work? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The word believe is from the word pistis. It has to do with faith. This is the work of God, that you believe, that you place your faith in the one whom God has sent. You see, what was the difference between the people's idea of work? The typical idea of work that we normally think of in the church when we hear the word work. What was their idea of work in John 6, 28 and Jesus' difference? What is the distinction between the two works? The two works distinction is the source of the work and the goal of the work. The difference in chapter 6, verse 28 and 29 between the two works, Gordon, is the goal, the source and the goal. The source and the goal. What is the source and goal in chapter 20, uh, keep saying chapter 28. Can you get it? It's verse 28. What is the source and goal of the people's idea of work? Self-generated, self-produced, moral achievement activity for their benefit. That's what they're thinking of. <clears throat> How many novenas do I need to do? How much money do I need to put in the plate? How many prayers do I need to say? What do I need to do in order to get to heaven? And Jesus didn't say, you don't have to do anything. He didn't say that. But he took the concept of this man-centered and man-generated work ethic, and he turned it around and cause them to see that it is a God-generated, a God-honoring, if you would, ethic. Our work is not something that we do indigenously in us. It's something that we decide to receive a work of someone else. The work of man's own personal moral achievement as a basis of God's approval is verse 28. Verse 29, the work is the work of our faith, if you would, in the work of God as a basis of God's approval. 
And what is this work of God? What is this work that Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe? And I think I have it down in another reference, but Paul calls this the work of faith. It's called the work of faith in 1 Thessalonians. So we can say, our work, well, faith isn't a work. Well, certainly it is. Certainly it is. It's not a work of personal ethics. It's a work of response. It's a work of taking a step. So what is this work? Our work of faith is to be receiving as a complete, eternal completion and satisfaction of our redemption, the good moral work of one perfect man who in all of his ways pleased God, never sinning, and then taking upon himself the full weight, penalty, and punishment of our sin, all of our sin, individually and collectively, to the cross so that when he dies in John 19, verse 30, and you'll see that in Psalm 22, the last verse of Psalm 22 is the same comment. It is completed. Condemning sin in the flesh. And in his resurrection, God exonerates him, vindicates his name, and declares that this man was his son, sinless, who bore our sin to the cross, and God accepts his death as ours. He accepts the punishment of our sins in him, and in him we are regenerated as he sends his Holy Spirit into the world to gather us the seed of life that God has planted all over the world in various places and at various times, and it begins to germinate the seed of his people being born again. Amen? That's the work of God. You see, the Bible does not teach that our salvation and sanctification is free of the necessity of our work of faith. It doesn't teach that. Now, are you beginning to think, hopefully, a little more clearly when we talk about is work necessary? Are you beginning to see that a little more clearly now? Oh, yeah, I know what you mean, but I thought, no, let's make sure we clarify things and not clutter them with terminology and concepts that are not biblical. You see, the Bible does not teach that there is such a thing as unconditional salvation. It's not there. Salvation is and always has been and always will be a conditioned activity. Conditions. It's always been conditioned on the work of faith. Always has. Always will be. There is a condition to our salvation. It is the work of faith. So when someone says, I believe in unconditional salvation, I don't say, oh, brother, you're wrong because... Of... No, just ask, what do you mean by unconditional? Just ask questions. Get terminologies defined. Go to the Bible and begin to determine what saith the word of God. To be saved, our work is the work of faith to believe to have faith in the finished work of christ on our behalf at the cross romans 5 1. is romans 5 1 in your notes what does romans 5 1 say anybody know what romans 5 1 says can anybody quote it without looking it up anybody quote it it starts with having 
having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Faith. This is called the work of faith. This is our activity. It is our response to the work of God in my heart. You say, but doesn't Romans 6.23 tell us, well, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's free. Well, yes, it says that. We have been taught and do believe that God's grace is a free gift. How many of you believe it's a free gift? But again, once again, define terms. Freely given and freely received. We know that. But free of what and free from what? Oh. Well, wait a minute, I thought it was just free. Well, yes, it is free. You know, if your mama and them give you a brand new automobile, Joe, Big Bubba gives you a new car. Dad, you've been the greatest guy in the world. Give you a brand new car, right? Is that a free gift? Yes and no. How much do you think it cost him? Is that a free gift? It's not even free to you. Is it a free gift? Unless he stole the car <laughs> and then he's going to jail. You see, we have to say free of what? Free for whom? What, what does free mean? Do you understand how we're not thinking clearly? We have to start thinking biblically and clearly and defining terms and grapple with these issues, especially as the enemy, through the confusion of the world, loves to come in and mess us up. My body said the other day, you believe in homosexuality is a sin. What was my answer? What do you think my answer says? I didn't tell him my opinion. I said, I believe what the Bible says. Let the Bible be that which is attacked and vilified, and I stand in the Word of God, rather than me putting what I think and my opinion, and then they begin to whittle that down. I believe what the Bible says. Well, what does the Bible say? Look it up. I'll give you some verses on it. Now let them begin to <coughs> grapple with the God of glory on this issue. You see, Debbie, I believe what the Bible says is my answer. And we always, that's where our answer is. So when folks begin to challenge you as a believer, I believe what the Bible says. Of course, that presupposes that you know what the Bible says. You know, and then they say, well, where is, uh, uh, I don't know, but I remember seeing a movie one time where, let's know what our Bible says. Free. When the Bible says that grace is free, it means free of our moral personal achievement achievement to earn it do you notice that Adam didn't have grace to obey Adam's was to be morally achieved his acceptance was based on his moral achievement do you remember that <laughs> Jesus acceptance and work of being the Messiah was based and as a result of his moral achievement 
moral achievement. So in Christ, we have morally achieved. Do you, do you see that? So it's free of my moral achievement. You see, grace is the most costly. It's not free. It's the most costly activity to God. It costs him the death of his own son. Grace is most costly activity of G to Jesus because it cost him his death on the cross. So be careful when we say grace is free, grace is free. Let us make sure we're communicating clearly. So in this sense, grace is not free. It costs God the most. Well, in what sense is grace free for us? Is it free for us? Well, yes, in one sense, no in another sense. You see, Francis, it's yes and no. I want to grab you before you fell asleep. It is free of our moral ability to earn it. Did we get that? Can anybody say, can everybody say amen? Aren't we glad that God does not say to us, you must be morally perfect in order to be saved? But in what sense is grace not free for us? It is not free of the necessity of our response. It's not free of that. Grace comes to us as a gift, free of our moral ability, and it is given to us. But it is not free to us just to say, and stand there. It requires a work, a response on our part. Listen to John chapter 1, 12 and 13, if you had that in your notes or maybe turn to it. It is not free of the necessity of our response, which is our work of faith. John chapter 1, verse 12, remember? But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, you see the tense, present, past, and future. Believed is what? What tense? Past tense, okay. God, he gave the right or the authority, exousia, authority to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of the will of God. What did they do? They received. The word in the Greek is lumbano. They received. It's the word lumbano. It means they took a hold of. They took hold of. It is an activity word. It's not a word of osmosis. If you want to save me, just save me. Just save me. No, it's not that. It's an active word, lumbano. It means to know something, to get an understanding, to desire, and grab it. Get a hold of it. Grab it. Get a hold of it. It means to take hold, lumbano. Get your hands on this thing. To all who receive, who believe. What does the word believe mean? There it is again, that word faith. You see, then John explains that their salvation was the result of God's will that they took hold of by faith. 
What are they taking hold of? That which God has given to them and being produced in them, they're taking a hold of that which is now in them working. It's called being born again. You remember in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, the Holy Spirit is doing a work, but there is a responsive work. This is the same truth that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. What does he say? For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. The word through, for by grace have you been saved, what? Through. The word through is a, what part of speech is it? Preposition. In the Greek, it's the word dia, D-I-A. It means a channel. It's a channel. Through the channel of. Through the channel of. By grace you have been saved, the finished work of Christ at the cross when he paid the full price for our righteousness and deliverance from sin. That work has been done. All is completed for our salvation at the cross, John 19, 30. And that's the word grace right there. That sums it up. You've been saved by grace. Then this is God's side of our salvation. It's God's side of our salvation. God has produced everything necessary for our salvation in the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's God's side. That's called grace. That's God's work. But then comes our side, our side of the activity. Through, the word dia, is the channel of an act. It is the, act, the channel through which the act flows. The salvation that God has provided comes to us by the Spirit. Remember we said that, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, the channel of the Spirit, and flows into us through the channel of our faith. Our, why do I say our in quotes? Because Paul says, this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Well, everybody knows that grace isn't of our own doing. This word, this is not your own doing, it refers to faith. Faith is not your own doing. So the grace is given to us, imparted to us, and the faith to be able to say yes and to enable us and empower our activity, our work to say yes, is even given to us. You see, the whole thing is given to us, but it is necessary for us to respond. It is necessary for us to respond. That is our side. Grace is free. Yes, it is, and no, it isn't. You understand, hopefully, a little bit better today. We're not saved by osmosis. Remember that thing kind of going through cells greater to the lesser? We're saved by God's grace work at the cross, given to us free of our moral disposition and activity, but received by us through the activity of us saying yes as God has put within us the heart to say yes. That is our activity of faith. Therefore, we see that our salvation is the result of the work of God and our work. The sovereignty work of God and the responsive work of man. And we see that throughout the entire Bible. We may not like to call faith a work, but this is exactly what Paul calls it in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. He calls it a work of faith. We don't like it only because we're allowing others or something else other than the Word of God to, to change us or manipulate or influence our terminology. I, for one, am not going to have my terminology influenced by others. I want to have it influenced and informed by what the Word of God says. So, for instance, I ain't using the word gay. I'm not going to use it. Why should I? It's not a biblical term. Do you believe in about gay? Gay, well, what's gay? What's gay? 
I don't know what you're talking about until you put it on biblical terminology. Now I got it. I'm not going to use the word alcoholism. Why not? What is it? Look it up in the Bible. What is it? Drunkenness. Ah, oh. oh, okay. Now I understand what you're telling me. I'm not going to use the word bipolar. Someone had the other day, they said bipolar. I said, well, what do you mean by that? She looked at me, she said, you don't know? I said, what do you mean by that? I didn't even say, I don't know. What do you mean by that? And then I said, well, what does the Bible say? You see, we have to get down to where the Bible is because this is where the sin issue is revealed and where God deals with it. If I don't see things as sin in my life, I can't begin to repent and receive the grace of God. Are you with me on this? So use the terminology of the world, but go to the Bible for these things. Can't hear a word. Oh, there is none. Then we look it up, and it's a long conversation. I told one man, I said, well, what, how do you know you're bipolar? I said, how do you know you're bipolar? He sat there, his wife's right next to him. He says, I said, give me an example, right? What is that about? He said, well, when I get upset, I go, you know, and I yell and scream and temper, and I hit this, and, I, and, and you know, and then for a couple of hours, it takes me a couple of hours to calm down. Now, I don't even know if this is what bipolar means in psychology. I don't know what that, but, but anyway, that's what he tells me. And so I'll sit there for a moment. I said, oh, you know what that sounds like to me? He said, what? Billy, what did I tell him? A temper tantrum. Whatever. He says, I never thought of that. He can repent of anger. He cannot repent of bipolarism. Now, am I saying today there's no psychological deficiencies? No, of course not. What I'm saying today is when we talk about these things, we must get them on biblical grounds. We must get them on biblical grounds to discuss them. I'm not denying the chemical problems in our brains and all that. I wouldn't deny that. I know it's there. But at least let's look at it biblically so we can begin to be informed biblically what's happening here. Let me move along. Our faith can be called our work as long as we are using the term biblically. When our faith does not refer to our righteousness, the deeds, righteous deeds, but to the righteous deeds of Christ in us by the Spirit. When our word work refers to the righteous deeds of Jesus Christ in me, through me, and my, in him, when that word work refers to those righteous deeds, I am using the word biblically. When I use the word work as my own personal righteous deeds generated by me and for me, I am misusing the word or at least using it in the wrong context. So you got that? Everybody had that. What is the work of God in me? What is my work of faith? What is my walk? What is my work worthy of the Lord? It is the righteous deeds of my Savior saving me and continuing in me by the Spirit by faith on my part, receiving and accepting and rejoicing and moving in obedience to that that is happening in my life. Titus tells us God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So what is the conclusion of the matter? To say that grace is unconditional, is free of any conditions, is not biblically accurate. So don't use the term anymore. Ask questions. The condition of our receiving God's gift of grace is our faith. Hebrews eleven six says what? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
So now that we've discussed the necessity of our faith, next week we'll start looking at what does it mean to walk worthy? What does that walk of sanctification mean? Thank you so much. Thank <clears throat> you.